welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. Each week, we interview the best and brightest in physical therapy, wellness, and entrepreneurship. We give you cutting-edge information you need to live your best life, healthy, wealthy, and smart. The information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be used as personalized medical advice. And now, here's your host, Dr. Karen Litzy. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. So happy to have you tuning in and downloading and subscribing. I thank you very, very much. Today's episode is brought to you by GoDaddy.com, where you can buy your own domain name, build your site, or use any of GoDaddy's business tools and save 30% today. All you have to do is head over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com, click on the resources tab and the GoDaddy icon to save 30%. All right. Today's episode... I am thrilled to have on Dr. Jackie Whitaker. Dr. Whitaker is an assistant professor in the Department of Physical Therapy, Faculty of Rehabilitation Medicine, and research director of the Glenn Sather Sports Medicine Clinic at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Canada. She is recognized as a clinical specialist in musculoskeletal physiotherapy by the Canadian Physiotherapy Association and is a fellow of the Canadian Academy of Manipulative Physical Therapists. Jackie's research interests lie in scientific inquiry that will substantially influence a shift in the approach taken to manage chronic musculoskeletal disorders from the treatment of chronic disease towards prevention and delaying or halting disease onset, including optimizing the musculoskeletal health of youth and adolescent populations. Jackie's background combines knowledge gained through 21 years of clinical practice and intensive research training, both PhD and postdoctoral fellowship. In addition to her appointment at the University of Alberta, Dr. Whitaker is an adjunct professor at the International Olympic Committee-funded Sports Injury Prevention Research Center at the University of Calgary, Canada, and associate member of the Arthritis Research UK Center for Sport, Exercise, and Osteoarthritis. So I met Dr. Whitaker in Monaco at the IOC uh, Sports Congress, and she was introduced to us by the lovely Emma Stokes. Now, I've already been following Dr. Whitaker on uh, Twitter, so it was really great to meet her in person, and then I couldn't wait to have her on the podcast because I really haven't done a podcast on youth sports injuries or on youth injuries at all. So this was great, and I have to say I've learned so much from Dr. Whitaker. So in this episode, we discuss the most common injuries in youth sports and their lasting impact, physical therapy's role in youth medical care, what is the most important in your first patient encounter. Great advice here, regardless of age. Dr. Whitaker has some pearls of wisdom. How to intervene for primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention. And Dr. Whitaker's current research on long-term effects of youth injury. So if you want to get all of Dr. Whitaker's research and delve into it, all you have to do is head over to podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. Click on the show notes for this episode because we ha- it will take you to her Twitter account and to her Alberta website, which has all of her publications on it. Um, and it's, it's amazing. Uh, so I want to, again, thank Dr. Whitaker for coming on and also thank GoDaddy for sponsoring today's podcast. So again, just head over to the podcast website, click on the resources tab and GoDaddy icon 
so you can save 30% to build your domain name, build your site, or use any of their business tools. So thanks to GoDaddy again for sponsoring today's podcast. And thank you all for listening. I know you're going to love this episode with Dr. Jackie Whitaker. Hi, Dr. Jackie Whitaker. I'm so happy to have you on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you. Welcome. And this is, if you can believe it, this is really the first time on the podcast, 280 some episodes, that I've sat down with a guest and we spoke about youth injuries. I, I can't believe it. I can't believe it either because, you know, half of the population on the planet, if not more, is youth. I know. And I can't believe this is the first time that I'm really talking about this and, and really going in depth here. So thanks so much for, for being the, the expert on today's podcast. I appreciate it. No um, so let's talk about youth's injuries. So where, where are most of these injuries coming from? Sure. So, I mean, we know, and the, the numbers that I'm going to speak about are related to research that's been done in Canada, but I would argue it's probably similar across the United States, most of Europe, Australia, New Zealand. So we know from some epidemiological work that's been done here that basically the leading cause of injury requiring medical attention is related to sport and recreation participation. And so in Canada, we know that about 33% of those between the ages of 11 and 18 will seek medical attention for a sport and recreational related injury every year. Um, yeah, so that's kind of the number one reason. I mean, obviously kids get injured for other reasons. And um, I always try to really make sure the message is clear that although it is the leading cause of injury requiring medical attention, it doesn't mean in any way, shape or form, our kids shouldn't be physically active or participate in recreation. But it's knowing that it is a potential place where they can be injured. And so we've got to do what we can to try to make it as safe as environment as possible. And what are the most common injuries? Sure. So generally speaking, I think it's fairly well accepted that the majority of the injuries involve the lower extremity. So somewhere around 60% of injuries involve the lower extremity, the most common being the knee and the ankle. Okay. So we've got kids around 33% or one in three between the ages of 11 and 18 getting injured. A good majority of them are the knee and the ankle. So I know a lot of your research centers around uh, certainly lower extremity injuries, knee in, knee in particular, and how that can then set them up for, for future injuries or disease states as they get older. So, so let's, let's talk a little bit about, we'll kind of maybe stick with the knee for a little bit. So what happens? You have these young kids getting injured. We see a lot an uptick, I think, in female knee injuries, ACL injuries. So before we even get to what happens to them later in life, why do you think that there are more injuries? Is it because there are more children, girls in particular, involved in sports? Or I'm sure it's multifactorial. Yeah, I think it's multifactorial. I think that a couple of things. So there's some work that's been done recently by Caroline Finch's group in Australia showing that there's been an increase in the number of youth sport-related injuries in the last several years. And it seems to be actually the increase is greater in kids younger than kids older. I can't remember. I think the cutoff was around 15 years. But basically, I would say there's probably a couple things. I think number one, um, there's more kids hopefully participating in organized sport. But the other two big things that I would say are probably contributing factors is that we don't have off seasons anymore in a lot of youth sports. 
kids will play their sport or be involved in a camp or something pretty much all year long. And the other piece that goes hand in hand with that is that they're specializing in one sport at a younger age. And there's definitely some evidence to suggest that that is also a contributing factor to there being more injuries. Um, and, it, you know, it really depends on how you define injury, too. A lot of times injury in the research literature, you know, is an acute episode that requires medical attention and results in you missing time from sport. But that doesn't really capture all those overuse type injuries, you know, or things like patellofemoral syndrome or tendonitis, which I think we see more commonly in those that, you know, don't have the off season and that are specializing at an early age. So I would say to you, I think that those pieces are part of it. Um, yeah. And I think there's also just more demands on kids to be, you know, productive in life and productive in sport at a much younger age. And there's a lot more demand on them. Yeah. So it, I agree. It's sort of that demand to be bigger, faster, stronger, better within their sport. Um, yeah. I mean, I see a lot of kids 10, 11 years old with n neck pain, you know, patellofemoral symptoms. And these are, these are kids, you know? Yeah. And so what, so now let's talk about what happens to these kids after they have an injury. We know some kids recover, some kids don't. So can you kind of give a little bit uh, more insight into what happens after that initial injury? Sure. So if we just talk about, let's talk about knee injuries, that's where most of my research has been. So I can speak to that, though I would argue that, you know, it probably is similar for potentially for ankles and other kind of acute joint injuries. So I think there's a couple things that can happen. You're absolutely right. Some kids, I think, bounce back for whatever reason fairly well. And when I say bounce back, they, you know, either they have an acute episode and that acute episode subsides and they're able to regain or have everything that they need to then go back and participate in sports, stay active, not be re-injured, etc. Um, I would argue, though, that the numbers would suggest that that's not the majority of kids. You know, um, there's a we, we know and, I, you know, we can talk to the extreme with the need talking about ACL injuries. We know that, you know, a good chunk of them are not going to return to the same level of competition or sport that they had before. Um, and depending on, you know, the study that you read, it, it could be anywhere between 30 to 55 percent of them won't return back to that same level of sport. Now, that doesn't necessarily apply maybe to less severe injuries. But I think one of the things that we've started to see in our particular cohort of kids who've had an, a knee injury while participating in sport under the age of 18 is that about three to 10 years out from their injury, they're at a higher risk of being overweight or obese by BMI. And you might say, okay, well, body mass index isn't a great indicator of obesity, but we also know they've got a higher odds of having a greater fat mass index um, or abdominal fat. So in other words, they're at a higher risk of increased adiposity. They're at a higher risk of being less active. And then, you know, the things that you would already sort of think that they have potentially some weaker muscles or some imbalances in muscles and hopping function and things like that. Um, so what it sort of suggests is that they they kind of are starting to head down this trajectory of sort of having negative health outcomes. We know that inactivity and adiposity are risk factors for a ton of chronic diseases. Um, and then, you know, the, the, the one disease that's near and dear to my heart is osteoarthritis. And we know the two most well-established risk factors for osteoarthritis. And I'm not, you know, there's a lot of risk factors for osteoarthritis, but the two most established are a joint injury and obesity, 
So it really looks like these kids who've had this, you know, they're active young kids participating in sport. They have a knee injury. And then some of them seem to go down this road where they compound their risk for the OA that they already have a risk for now. And, uh, you know, we're seeing them head in that direction. And it, it's a bit worrisome because, um, you know, we it's just we've got to figure out how we can potentially prevent that second compounding risk factor from happening. And so then obviously my next question is, is what can we do as healthcare professionals, as physios in particular, we're both physical therapists or physiotherapists. So where do we fit in, in this continuum of care for these kids? Well, I think we actually have a really vital role to play with play in. So, I mean, number one, I mean, I can think back to when I was a kid and I think it's different now, but it's rare. I think that my parents would have ever taken to me a physiotherapist if I hurt my knee. Um, now it might've been, but again, I grew up in a rural area, whatever it was. There's probably not as many physios around, but back then, you know, you kind of just got some ice, you took a rest and then you were back out on the field playing soccer or doing whatever. Totally. Um, and so I mean, I think one of the things that we can sort of just as being part of society advocate for is that we shouldn't just take these things as being insignificant. And it doesn't mean that the kid's going to need a long course of therapy, but I do think we need to, you know, make sure that, you know, there's some basic characteristics in place before they return to sport. So that's number one. And that's just us operating as physiotherapists in society. But when we talk about interacting with patients, I think there's some key things we can do. What I often say to physios that I interact with is that it's important that we keep our eye on the long ball. Of course, our rehab at the time of an acute injury is going to be about the resolution of that acute injury, and it needs to be. And our short-term goal and the goal that we're going to get the kid or their parents to buy into is getting them back to sport. And that's very important. But we also have to give them appropriate expectations and explain to them that, you know, now that they've hurt their injury or hurt their knee, there's a chance that they may find that they get frustrated and they quit physical activity and they start to gain weight. And so it's just important to remember that we also have to have their long-term musculoskeletal health in the back of our head when we're treating their acute injury and trying to get them back to sport. So making sure that we're having those conversations. Yeah. And, and I think that's, so important because you want to be able to give these kids a sense of confidence in their body and in themselves and give themselves, give them that sort of locus of control that they need to be able to go out and not only compete in their sport, but like you said, maybe two years down the line, maybe try something else or have the confidence in their body to do the things that they need to do and want to do. Yeah. So, you know, what I always say is that, you know, as physios, it's sometimes hard to have the difficult conversations, right? And so, you know, let's say we're talking about a young athlete who's torn their ACL. Um, the reality of it, and you're not going to have this conversation the moment they walk in because you need to build a relationship with them, but the reality of it is that their, their knee is never going to be the same again. And that's really unfortunate, but that is the reality. And I think to give them the belief that their knee is going to be exactly like it was prior to injury and that they're going to go down the same trajectory in life that they were going to go down prior to their knee injury is really not responsible on our part or any healthcare practitioner's part. And I don't think we do that on purpose, but I think by sometimes avoiding those difficult conversations, we do. 
Um, and that's why what, what I say when we have to give them realistic expectations, you know, okay, look, our number one goal is to return you to sport at the same level. And we're going to do this, 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 and this to do that. And as long as you can demonstrate equal quadricep strength and, a, you know, a equal hopping skills and things like that. Yeah. I'm going to let you return to sport, but there is a percent chance that you're not going to be able to do that. So early on in the game, I want to identify a second, a second goal, a, an alternative goal. That, that still involves you having a competitive outlet, that still involves you doing something that you're passionate about, that still keeps you involved with your peer group, so that just in case we can't get you your first goal, we've got a good second backup goal. And I think by doing that, we're, we're starting to have that conversation around realistic expectations. And then it's not quite as shocking to them you know, I have a, a patient advocate on the study that, that we're doing, and she played soccer at a university level. And it wasn't until her fourth knee surgery, she'd had two ACL reconstructions and a couple of the surgeries. It wasn't until the fourth surgery that the physician actually said to her, you know, have you ever thought about maybe not playing soccer anymore? And it's crazy for me to think that 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 had never really been a conversation that came up with anybody or even in her head, something that she'd thought about. Yeah. And it just, it doesn't seem quite fair, does it? Yeah. And again, I mean, it is hard to have those difficult conversations. And of course you can't have them right off the stop, the top, because in all honesty, they're grieving for what they've lost. But the thing is they have lost something and they do need to go through that grieving process and they have to look at it from a realistic perspective. And I really do think if we go back to your original question around what we can do is I think that we have to be realistic we have to be positive, but we also have to provide alternatives, um, you know, and be the voice of reason and not just get caught up in this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to get back to sport. No problem. Because then when they don't, they think it's something they haven't done right. Or they think that it's something potentially that that they, you know, they're deficient in that's not allowed them to do that. And I think that can turn into frustration they, they don't want to play sport maybe at a less competitive level. So they just give up on being active. They become a little depressed and then it all just starts going the wrong direction. Yeah. And, and I think it's so important what you mentioned earlier about, you know, choosing that secondary goal that can still keep them within that peer group. And again, it, it is a hard conversation to have. Yeah. And, and you don't want to feel like you're bursting someone's bubble. I think that's the hard part, right? Yeah, I agree. And so I think there's, you know, you, it's obviously got to be skillful. And I think that it, you know, it requires the therapist to have good communication skills. And let's face it, I'm not sure. I know when I came out of my, you know, entry to level program as a physio, you know, I was young. I wasn't necessarily mature. I couldn't have those, those difficult conversations. It wasn't until years later that I realized you know, there was communication skills I lacked and I had to find a way to actually get them to have those conversations. And I do really think that as physios, you know, we think about continuing education and this manual therapy technique or this taping technique or this or that. I really think one of the pushes that we need in our in our profession around continuing education is how do you communicate? How do you have those difficult conversations? How do you set you know, realistic expectations. How do you do that motivational interviewing? Because you really want them to feel like they've come up with a solution that works for them. That's the key. It doesn't matter if we think we're happy. Yeah. And how did you sort of brush up on your communication skills? Well, I think it's a couple things. So I think the number one most important communication skill is listening. Agreed. And and I would say that as physios, and I'm going to talk about myself, but most physios that I know, we're fixers. 
we're, 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 we're good at what we do and we do what we do because we like to help people and we like to fix problems. But as soon as we think we know what the problem is, we just dive into fixing it. And often we don't listen long enough to really understand the problem. And so I think the very first thing to answer your question that I did to brush up was actually just learning how to listen. And I would still say that I'm not great sometimes. And I find myself, you know, sort of interrupting or cutting someone short because I think I know where they're going and I'm excited and passionate to take the conversation to the next level. But actually, I maybe don't quite know what they're talking about or going to say. And I almost shut them down by doing that. So I, I think that, you know, you can learn communication skills in a lot of different ways. You know, you can learn to if you can't sit and listen, maybe you learn how to meditate so you can learn how to just be present and let someone else talk and just be present with what they're saying. And I love that the conversation kind of went into that direction with communication skills and learning how to goal set and meet expectations for these patients. Um, because it's, it's not like you're dealing with a little, it's just not a miniature adult, right? No, it's not. So there's and differences there. There absolutely is. And I think that, you know, because we all have been an adolescent, we think we know what adolescents want and think and believe. Um, but you know, I have a son, he's 20. Um, so we've just gone through that whole phase and maybe still are in some ways. And although I recognize things he says and done do, do, do that I have done in the past, we're in a very different place. And I think that it's really important that we give them a voice. And I think we have to give them a voice when their parents are present and also when their parents aren't present. The whole other dynamic or piece to the dynamic with treating this, this age group is that we've got parents and maybe we've got coaches and, and other people that are important to them. And we can't, we, we can't disregard the importance of those people and the messages they're going to provide. The key is going to be having an environment that's got a consistent message in it. And so sometimes, and I know, you know, this is a difficult conversation, I think, for, for us as therapists sometimes, too, is having those conversations with the parents and the coaches with the child present and, and actually making them listen to the child and and then them listening to you and then you shutting up and listening to them and letting everyone speak, you know, their truth about the situation till you find out what works best. So, no, they're not little adults. They think very differently. You can talk to them till you're blue in the face about the fact they've got a higher risk for osteoarthritis. They won't care. Right. They don't. Yeah, you're going to need a knee replacement when you're 40. I don't know. I'm 19. I don't care. So it's going to have to be another hook. And that's probably going to be the return to sport or or good musculoskeletal health or feeling good about yourself or that sort of thing. Um, so I think that's important. But you really won't know what motivates somebody, whether they're young or old, until you actually listen to them. Yeah, absolutely. And now, you know, so we've, I feel like we've kind of hit that part of, okay, this is what a PT can do with this initial acute injury. And, and this is important for us. What about the prevention side of things? So we have things like the, the FIFA plus and, and all of these or the, the PEP or the PEP program. So where do physical therapists fit into the prevention side of things and does it, does it work in the reduction of injury? 
Sure. So I'm just going to start by just, I, I want to just, for me, I like models. They kind of work for me a little bit. So if you think about it, there's this epidemiological model, that'll sound really fancy, for disease prevention. But basically, when you think about preventing a disease, you think about preventing the precipitating event in populations that are at risk. So for instance, what we're talking about is I'm going to prevent a knee injury in a bunch of youth that play soccer because their youth, I know that they're likely potentially to get an injury, one third of them. And so I know they're a susceptible population. And so I'm going to do something to prevent the injury. We call that primary prevention. Okay. And then there's that period between when they have the injury before they develop, let's say osteoarthritis. And we can do a variety of things in that period to either slow down or delay or halt the onset of osteoarthritis. We call that secondary prevention. And then we've got people that actually have, let's say, the disease OA, osteoarthritis. We do things to improve function and reduce disability in that group, and we call that tertiary prevention. So there's primary prevention, secondary prevention, and tertiary prevention. I think as physiotherapists, we have a role in all three stages. Obviously, I think most physios can go, oh, you know what? Yeah, I can totally relate to the tertiary prevention piece. I'd probably never call it that. But that's what I do every day in the clinic. I work with people that have a disease to try to improve their function and reduce their disability. Okay. And I think even the secondary prevention we can relate to because that's the piece of, okay, they've had the injury. I'm treating the acute injury. But maybe I'm checking in with them over the years after they've had the injury to try to maybe slow down the onset of osteoarthritis, etc. But then, as you just asked, there's this piece around primary prevention, which is, are there things that I can do to prevent injuries in healthy people? And we're really lucky when we talk about sport and recreation, particularly if we talk about soccer um, and we talk about prevention of lower extremity injuries, because we do have a variety of different um, programs and let's just call them neuromuscular warm-up programs. But you're right. There's the FIFA 11 plus now the 11 plus there's the pep program in Australia. They've got the footy first program. There's a variety of them. Um, and we did a systematic review several years ago, and there's been a recent systematic review that's just come out about the FIFA 11 plus absolutely reduces the number of lower extremity injuries anywhere between 30 to 40 to 50 percent, depending on when you read the study. I think the recent meta-analysis is somewhere around, I don't know, 34, 40 percent. We know that it reduces injuries, but we also know it only reduces injuries if you do it. So and, and, and how well you adhere to it. So the good news is we've got a program that if we get people doing, we know we can reduce injuries. And as far as I'm concerned, as somebody who does research in osteoarthritis, that is the best solution for me. If you avoid the injury, you avoid all the other problems. And I don't have to come up with as many solutions for you because you haven't even had the injury. Um, so I think that, that these neuromuscular warm-up programs are extremely important, extremely valuable. We're seeing them now being expanded to other court sports like basketball, volleyball. We're also seeing some work um, up in Canada where we're starting to use them in phys ed classes in schools. So they're getting them as part of your, their phys ed class to learn how to move a little bit better. And we're seeing some positive outcomes with respect to obesity, as well as injury rates being reduced. So very positive. Um, what's our role as physiotherapists in that? I think that it's probably what most physios wouldn't think is traditionally our role, which is to prevent injuries, to deal with people that haven't had an injury. 
But I do think that we have a role to play in that and that we do have a unique set of skills that we bring to the table for that primary prevention piece. Yeah, I agree. And thank you so much for kind of breaking it down into those three categories of primary, secondary, and tertiary. I can see where the physiotherapist can fit into each one of those categories. And and I think that's important. And I think as physiotherapists, I don't think we are thought of in the prevention part of it no. as much as we should. And I think as physios, we don't insert ourselves into that right. as much as we should either. So I think right. it's, there's a lot of different reasons, but I think you're right. We have a particular set of skills that make us very, very able to step into that role. Okay. I think so. Absolutely. Okay. So let's talk about your current research because you guys have been getting a lot of buzz up there in Canada. Uh, with your current current research. So can you tell us a little bit more about that? Yeah, sure. So I kind of alluded to it a little bit earlier, but basically during my postdoctoral fellowship at the University of Calgary, up here in Alberta, in Canada, we started a cohort study where we took 100 young youth and young adults who had had an intraarticular knee injury three to 10 years ago when they were playing youth sports. So they all had their knee injury when they were under the age of 18, um, but now, at, at the point we recruited them to the study, they were anywhere between 15 to 26. And then we also recruited 100 individuals who hadn't had a knee injury, and we matched them on age, sex, and sport. And we followed them now annually for three years. And um, what we learned from that study, I've sort of alluded to, number one, the kids that had had the injury we're at a higher risk of structural changes on MRI that are consistent with future osteoarthritis. So we're starting to see some changes in the structure of the joint that would suggest they're heading down that road. They're at a higher risk of over, being overweight, obese, more adiposity, less physically active, poorer balance, poor triple single leg hop performance, weaker knee musculature, that sort of thing. Um, and so we kind of got an inkling. So part of why we did the study, there was kind of two main purposes was we want to follow them to the point where they develop osteoarthritis so we can look back in time and go, okay, what was it three to 10 years out from the injury that would help us identify those that were going to get osteoarthritis so we could identify them earlier? And then what were they deficient in that was modifiable that we could create a, a rehab program or a prevention program around to address early when we talk, when we found them, right? So screen for them early and then intervene to try to delay the onset. So I think from that study, we kind of identified a few things. So as far as the screening piece, who's at the highest risk? I think we always knew those that tore their ACL and hurt their meniscus were at a higher risk. And we definitely found that as well as those who've had surgery. But what we also found, which was interesting, was that those who had seemingly less severe ligamentous injuries, so like first to third degree medial or lateral collateral ligament injuries, actually have two times greater risk of having MRI changes related to osteoarthritis than the healthy controls. So although their risk isn't as elevated as those with a, a meniscal and or a, a, an ACL tear, they do have an elevated risk compared to the non-injured people. And so the, what that means to me is that depending on how much it's gonna cost you to do that secondary prevention piece, we shouldn't just automatically exclude those that haven't torn their ACL on their meniscus or had surgery. 
So that was number one. And then as far as what do we do as far as an intervention program, I don't think we completely know. But I think based on our work, as well as lots of other people's work, we I think we know, okay, yeah, they've got to have good muscle strength. They have to have good neuromuscular control. We need to address this um, risk in some of them to become less active and have more adiposity. And ideally, we want to prevent them from becoming inactive or prevent them from gaining weight, not actually waiting for them to do it and then try to reverse it, because that's always more challenging. And then I think we also, one of the things that we did in the study was we did some qualitative interviews. One of our PhD students, Alice, Alice and Azette, did some um, qualitative interviews and identified sort of some of these pieces we've been talking around um, realistic expectations and their beliefs around sport and injury and osteoarthritis. But the, the other thing that what this is what the study did is it showed us that a lot of these secondary factors that are going to compound the risk for osteoarthritis were already present at three years. And so what I've just recently done is received a grant from the Arthritis Society here in Canada to now follow a similar group of 100 people who've hurt their knee and 100 controls from the time of injury forward for three years. And one of the things that's unique about both the work I did in my postdoc and in this new cohort is that we aren't just following people that have torn their ACL. So we're making sure that we're including some of these seemingly less severe injuries to understand what happens there. Because there's been a lot of work done in that first three years in the ACL group, but we don't necessarily, and, and in the ACL group as it relates to return to sport, but not so much in that early group as it relates to knee injury and long-term musculoskeletal health. Yeah, and and I mean, it sounds like I definitely look look forward to what happens from this this new cohort. Um, and it it also signals to me that just because you have a seemingly not as serious knee injury, that there are still ramifications down the line. And so we spoke a little bit earlier about communication with the parents and the coaches and as the therapist, what our role is. So this was, it kind of leads into a question from uh, Dr. Sean Carmody uh, on Twitter. And he asks, um, from the physiotherapist or the healthcare practitioner, do you have any practical tips for youth coaches to help athletes achieve improving as a player and minimizing risk uh, yeah. for injury, which I think fits nicely even into the this upcoming cohort that, that you are going to be studying? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think a couple things. So I think, I think that there is, there's always, I think we always see it as a dichotomy, right? Or a competing interest sort of thing. I want to become more skilled, therefore I need to practice and I need to practice a lot, but I don't want to overuse my body so that I get injured or I don't want to put myself in a situation where I've got an increased risk of injury. And I think that, you know, there's been a lot of really good work done in the last couple of years um, by a, a few people around this whole acute chronic workload ratio. So Tim Gabbett's work and Eric Vint's work. And I think that you know, we know that you can train hard and trade smart. And I, I, I don't think that there has those don't I don't think those things have to be a competing interest. But what it requires, especially in youth sport, is you're going to need a coach that's very knowledgeable in those concepts and needs to have some conversations with the kids on the teams around balancing workload and, and keeping it appropriate, but then making it clear to the parents and the kids around 
you know, you can't have these large swings where you're not doing anything and then doing a whole bunch and then not doing anything and doing a whole bunch. You really need to build up a kind of base of, of exposure and then maintain that. And if you do that, you're going to have a less likely chance of being injured. So I think that's part of it is monitoring load. Now, how easy that's going to be able to do in some of these youth community teams might be a bit challenging, but I do think that that's knowledge that our youth coaches need. I think the other pieces, and we sort of alluded to them at the start of our conversation is there needs to be an off season. There needs to be a break sometimes. And, and then you've got to build slowly from that break. You can't go from zero to a hundred. So you got to have an off season, but then there needs to be a preseason before you're practicing five or six times a week. Cause if not, you know, I mean, my own son, it, it, every year he was a, he's a soccer player. And every year, about a month into the first part of the soccer season, his groin would start to bug him every year. And I knew it was, you know, we just, no matter how much I heart, we never really got that base in place before he was going five or six days a week. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So then I guess the other two pieces is the importance of maybe cross training. So thinking about, you know, different things, and that might be more preseason, it might not be during the season, but that cross training, that might even be the off season. Um, and then I, I think the other piece is just, you know, encouraging them to do other sports. And I think really as a coach, helping them to learn how to move well, good technique, because good technique is gonna be good skill, which is gonna lead to good performance. And as you, if you've got good technique and you've built up that base of sort of chronic workload, hopefully you're going to find yourself in a situation where you're not getting injured as much. Yeah, I'll, it, great tips for, for anyone really, but really great for those youth uh, coaches. So thank you for that. Then we had one other question from uh, social media from Christina Lee. <laughs> and she would like to know who is your current favorite student and why? Well, that's a very difficult question, considering she is my current student. <laughs> so I obviously have to answer this in the correct way, or my life could be miserable. <laughs> right. <laughs> and for those like who don't know, Chris, so Christine, she's on um, uh, Twitter at Yeg Physio, um, and she just like totally killed it during the IOC. I think she won. She did win, right? yes. She won. So it's Y-E-G, which is yeah. um, our airport code, Edmonton. It's Y-E-G physio. So it's like Yeg physio. Oh, um, okay. Yeah, no, so Chris is awesome. She's got an incredible amount of passion for, you know, exactly all the things that we're talking about. And I think she felt very privileged to be able to go to Monica to the Monaco to the IOC conference. And uh, I think took you on head on with the Twitter <laughs> And, uh, it, yeah, she, she, it worked out well. Yeah, I know. I was like, if only I retweeted myself a couple more times, I would have won, but I couldn't win because I was part of the social media team yeah, fair enough, anyway. Fair enough. So I couldn't even win, but yeah, it's all was, good. Yeah. We did a lot of spreading the word. Okay. Now, before we end, I have one more question that I've been asking all of my guests and this is knowing where, okay. Knowing where you are now and what you know, as a physio and in life, what advice would you give to yourself as a new grad? So, yeah, I've thought about this because I knew you were going to ask me this question. And I think we've touched on a couple of the points. So I think one thing for sure is learn how to listen and, and, and realize that you can always be a better communicator. And if there's opportunities to learn how to listen better or be a better communicator, do it. 
It is often hard, I think, in our clinical environments when you have maybe 15 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes with a patient to get their story in a fast way to allow you to then jump in and do something. But I think the key is just learn how to listen to people. I had a great mentor by the name of Earl Petman in our manual therapy program up here in Canada. And I remember Earl saying very early on to me, you know, Jackie, if you just listen long enough, the patient will tell you what the problem is and what you need to do for them. Um, but the key is there's, you know, there's always that strain of time. But the key, so first of all, Jackie, as a young new grad, you need to listen better and you need to learn how to communicate better. Um, I think the second piece to that is, you know, understanding that um, you're not supposed to know everything. You don't know everything, but it's but there are lots of people out there that want to share knowledge with you. Our profession is one of the most amazing professions. There's so many ways to engage what you might see as someone being an expert out there. And I can't think ever of a time that I've approached somebody and ask them a question where they turned me away and said they wouldn't answer the question. So don't be afraid to get involved. Don't think you're too young to be involved. Don't think that you have, don't have a role to play in a professional association or that you can't approach, you know, a seemingly expert and ask them a question and maybe even question them on, on what they're saying. Um, I think we have a very, very, you know, encompassing profession that way. And we're very lucky. So I think that second piece would be don't be don't think, you know, everything and don't be afraid to get out there, get involved, talk to people, ask questions. I think that's probably kind of the second piece. Um, yeah, I mean, I think those are sort of the two main sort of things that I had thought about is listen to people. Um, and, you know, I guess the other piece is, again, I think I'm pretty biased, but I think we, we do have an amazing profession and it allows us to experience a lot of different, um, sort of segments of what you might call healthcare, but then also what we were alluding to before, which is the prevention piece. And if you don't feel like you've found your home within the profession is just realizing there's lots of other options out there. And again, that's where you need to get out and talk to people and find out where you might fit in and where your passion fits. Yeah. And that is all 100% amazing advice. So thank you so much. And before we end, um, where can people find you? And we'll have, now I will say we'll have all of the, the, all of your information up on the show notes, but for people who, I don't know, don't want to go to the show notes, where can people find you? Well, you can find me on Twitter. It's just at jwittak underscore physio. Um, you can find me, I guess, on the University of Alberta website. I have a professor page there and it's pretty interactive. And, um, you know, if, if you need to find me there and there's an email address there where you can contact me, that's not a problem. Perfect. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for taking the time out and coming on. This was great. I really appreciate it. It was wonderful. Thanks so much. My first podcast and I've what? thoroughly enjoyed myself. Oh my God. What a pro. I thought <laughs> I would never have thought that in a million years. You are great. Thanks so much for coming on. No worries. Um, Thank and you. Everybody. Thanks so much for listening and taking the time out of your day and have a great week and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thank you for listening and please subscribe to the podcast at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media.